11 tonight, beginning with John 11. I'm not sure how uh, far uh, I'll get with that tonight. Uh, it's an interesting uh, sort of, John is kind of concluding now his, the I am statements that he has. This is the, I think it's the last recorded sign that John uh, speaks of in his narrative in the Gospel of John. There is one other, uh, I think, at the end of uh, when Christ is in the garden and Peter takes off Malchus's ear, which recorded that Jesus heals his ear. But uh, outside of that, this is the uh, kind of the last sign in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. So uh, John has been making the case for the uh, for for Christ. Ultimately, uh, I would. Probably, I was wanting to say for the deity of Christ because he is very, very strong in regards to talking about the deity of Christ, but he also doesn't exclude his humanity. Uh, in this particular narrative in regards to Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus, uh, you see both of those at work. Uh, so I don't know how far I'll get, but I just want to talk tonight a little bit about the, the context of it, uh, those persons who were involved, the places and then the circumstances that are leading up to what uh, I would call the gateway to glory. Um, we don't often think, we ought to, but we don't think often that times of despair and distress uh, are providentially some of the one, most wonderful times to behold the glory of God. And there's nothing uh, more striking and distressing than the death of someone that we love or the dying or the, or the approaching of death of someone we love. And sometimes we feel uh, as, those though, as, though, as though in those moments um, God is absent. But it may be, in this case, it certainly was that God's glory was about to be revealed in a very powerful way. And it may be true in our lives as well. So let's read uh, at least verse 1 through 16. Uh, I may read further as we go, but let's begin there in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Mar Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that, that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him there. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may also die with him. 
So I'll stop there uh, for the time being. So I just want to look, as I said tonight, uh, at the persons involved here. Obviously, the, um, not the main character, but one of the main persons is Lazarus himself, uh, which is really uh, kind of an abridged, uh, an abridged name of Eleazar, uh, which means God has helped. So I thought it was quite significant that that's the name of Lazarus because God is going to help in, a, in an extraordinary way here. Uh, it's interesting, uh, John's writing much later in his gospel, so even when he mentions later about Mary anointing Christ's feet with her hair, um, that's a story that's already been communicated in the other gospels, which came earlier, and so John refers to Mary that way as well. So uh, it, is, it is known that Lazarus and Martha and Mary were uh, really close and intimate friends of Jesus. Um, Jesus, it says here, loved them. So uh, it was interesting to me as well that they say of him in verse 3 and verse 5, um, the, the sisters say, Jesus whom, or Lazarus, whom you love. So they are, they are recognizing the love of Jesus here. And I just thought that was significant because theologically and conceptually, we would say Jesus is love. Jesus loves us. Uh, we sing the song even from little children, but they're testifying here, and it struck me because their testimony of his love for Lazarus to me was a that is an indication that the love of Christ for Lazarus was manifest. He showed his affections for Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. So that's who we're speaking of here. It is also in verse 5, it was a love of Lazarus attested to by Jesus uh, himself. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he loves them all, but I just wanted to point out the, the central person other than Christ involved in this is Lazarus, the one whom Jesus loves. And he doesn't just love him theologically or conceptually. He has manifest in his relationship that he does love him. Uh, uh, I was reading, I think I was listening to MacArthur on, uh, or maybe reading MacArthur on a commentary here, and he was making the point that when we speak of the humanity of Christ, and I realized he was right about this, but when we speak of the humanity of Christ, we say things like he, he hungered and he thirsted and he grew weary, but we never say anything in regards to, and he had emotions, he had affections for human beings, he had relationships. And so uh, that's, that's attributable not just to his deity. Certainly God can have relationships, but I think it's an indication of his humanity as well, that Jesus enjoyed uh, relationships with human beings and he manifested a genuine, authentic human affection for other people. And that's the kind of person Lazarus was here. I think sometimes, and I have to guard against this because I read the passages and I see the glory of God and the glory of Christ, and it's easy for me to put Christ in the realm of deity and, and forget uh, the humanity of Christ as well and the tenderness of Christ. Uh, Jesus weeps in this passage, and, and so there is a genuine affection uh, involved in Christ. He was fully man, and just as a full men are, we are emotional beings. We we need relationships. We, we express affection in our relationships. And so it's just interesting to me that Lazarus was one of those uh, to, to whom Jesus expressed that. The other person, another person involved in this, obviously, is Mary. Verse 2 there, uh, 
She mentions her in verse 2. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. As I already said, the story's already been recorded in the gospel. John includes that as an identifying mark. And so the, his readers, by the time John wrote his gospel, would have recognized, well, that's the Mary that Matthew wrote about or Luke wrote about. And so he's identifying her very specifically. So this is the, the Mary. She's the one who did that, but she's also, and they would have known this, she's also the one uh, who sat at the feet of Jesus while her sister Martha was busy. And you remember, Jesus says of this Mary that she has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And then he kind of mildly and lovingly rebukes Martha because she's busy, busy, busy about many things. And Mary had the good sensibilities to understand that Christ was here and there was nothing more critical and more important in that moment than sitting at the feet of Christ and communing with Christ. That's this Mary. That's who's involved here. She chose that good part. It's interesting uh, that she stays in the home later on when we see this narrative unfolding and Martha, uh, Martha goes to Jesus. So Martha's always the one acting upon impulse or acting upon her feelings. Mary seems more contemplative. So that's the Mary who's involved here. And I've already mentioned Martha in verse 1 and 5. It mentions her. Uh, we know Martha well from the other Gospels. Uh, I, always, I, I, I know a lot of Marthas. In fact, I know more Marthas than I do Marys. Uh, hope, hope is a Martha. Uh, hope, hope sees a task and she, gets, she engages in getting it done. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think Jesus would commend that under normal circumstances. Uh, that industriousness is a good thing. Uh, I think his rebuke of Martha in that certain situation was that the occasion warranted a contemplation of Jesus, that Mary had chosen rightly in that moment. Uh, and he certainly uh, wasn't going to rebuke Mary, which is what Martha wanted him to do. So Martha became presumptuous in that. Uh, I don't think he was rebuking her industriousness. That's a good quality uh, in, in all of us, not just women. But that's Martha. She's the busy servant uh, in verse 21, if you'll look forward to that just for a moment, she's sort of a reprover of Jesus in this circumstance because she says to him, uh, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, so her first meeting with Jesus, or one of her first, she's, she comes to Jesus and wants him to rebuke her sister and correct the situation there. And, and here in this hour, she comes to Jesus and in some ways rebukes him for what he didn't do. You should have been here. Uh, if you'd have been here, she wouldn't have died. Now, we can certainly sympathize with her, and, and my heart goes out to her because I, I believe she meant that, really meant that. She, meant, she felt like if the presence of Christ had been here, he could have acted in some ways to preserve the life of her dear brother and the one whom he loved. Lord, if you'd have just been here, you would have never have died. And so we, we sympathize with Mary, but these are the people involved. All three of these, in their imperfections, and Lazarus certainly had his, all three of these, Jesus specifically loved. Now, like I said, I know Jesus loves me, and I know from the scriptures of the love of Christ, and Paul tells us that we can never be separated from the love of God in Christ, and, and we know conceptually the love of Christ. But I, I love the narratives where Jesus is, is specifically said to be loving people, loving individuals in this case that are named Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, this family, this brothers and sisters. The other group of people involved 
are the disciples. You see it in verse 8 and verse 12 and, and really throughout the passage. So you have your disciples here. Uh, just as a matter of context, you remember after the, after the confrontation with the religious leaders, uh, they, they really kind of escaped with their lives. They wanted to stone them again. And so they had left Jerusalem and they'd gone uh, the couple of miles, several miles to, to Bethany and they were there. And so the disciples rightly, uh, whatever Jesus knew his time was not yet. I don't think Jesus was concerned that they were going to kill him before his time. But Jesus slipped away because his time was not yet. But his disciples, in, from their perspective, we almost lost it here. I mean, several times while we've been in Jerusalem, they've taken up stones to stone you, Jesus. And, and I, we just barely got out of there this time with our life. And so we see the disciples nervous, uh, uneasy, certainly not understanding the fullness of Christ coming, the time that was coming, which was coming very near now. But they just understood the situation as threatening. We've gone to Bethany. Let's stay here. Let's don't cause any trouble here. Let's, you know, we've avoided this stoning. Your ministry has to continue. So that's kind of where they are. In fact, verse 8, you see that whenever Jesus finally suggests to them that they go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And so you have this group of followers who have been following Jesus who are, who are still not understanding. Even though Jesus had been very, fairly, uh, fairly clear with them in regards to what was about to unfold. And he certainly had been clear about his identity to the religious leaders. And we know that some believe, but in large part, the religious community rejected him and his claims. And they were, as I shared, they were as blind as, as the blind man was. But his disciples are kind of on the periphery as well. They've been following him. They've been privy to all his teachings. They have their own beliefs and their convictions in regards to Christ. I don't think they were in any way apostate, but they were still not understanding, still somewhat blind as it were. So here they are. We find them rebuking Jesus or questioning Jesus as to, are you sure it's a wise thing to go back to Judea? Uh, at least at the very minimum, that's what they're doing. We have also not, uh, we have one of the disciples named here, Thomas, the Ordidimus. He's the, we call him Doubting Thomas, but here uh, his faith is commendable. Uh, I think he says to them later on in this verse, verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. So the disciples seem fairly convinced that if Jesus returns to Judea, things are not going to go well that his time is going to be exhausted. But rather than abandon him and let their fear drive them away from him, Thomas, I think, speaks for all the disciples and says, well, if he's going, let us go and let us die with him. Uh, it's, it's, it's striking to think that later on when Jesus does die and is resurrected from the dead, it's this same Thomas who is not quite sure that that really is Jesus. And Jesus even graciously accommodates his doubt and says, look, Thrust your hand into my side. See, it is me. It is me, Thomas. Do not doubt, but believe. And so that's this Thomas. So these are the persons involved here. Uh, farther on, there'll be the religious leaders and others involved and the crowd standing around as well. But the primary central character of this narrative is the person of Jesus. Uh, don't ever overlook that because we can, uh, we can be quite impressed with others in this narrative. In fact, uh, 
the people were so impressed that Lazarus was eventually raised from the dead that whenever they began to plot how to kill Jesus, they wanted to take him out too. But, but this was a pretty massive miracle. There were lots of people who had gathered around. Apparently, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were fairly well-known in their community and well-liked, apparently. So there was a good crowd of people. So some people estimate up to 100, maybe even 1,000 people bore witness to what's about to happen in this raising of Lazarus. We also know that this event is going to set in motion uh, more than just more than just a desire to silence Jesus, but an actual plotting to silence him permanently. So this is really going to activate the blindness and the, the, that's already been expressed by the religious leaders in Jesus. This is going to actually agitate them to the point of becoming murderous. And so this is a significant event. And the central character in all of that is Jesus Christ. Notice just the words of Christ from this narrative. In verse 4, whenever he learns that Lazarus is sick, Jesus says, this sickness is not to end in death. Uh, I, I like the phrasing of that. The end of this is not death. It is the glory of God. Now we know that Lazarus one day was going to die and the glory of God would be there as well. But he's speaking here of this sickness. It is reported that Lazarus is sick and Jesus says very clearly, the end of this sickness is not death. The outcome of the sickness is not going to be death. So they might have said, well, God's going to be glorified and you're going to go heal him. He didn't say that. He just says the end of the death, the end of the sickness does not result in death. What he's going to do is display the glory of God. And that's all he says at this point. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. And secondly, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So two things happening there. Jesus says the reason the sickness is not going to end in death, whatever is going to interrupt that course of events, is for the glory of God. And so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. And so the glory of the Son of God is related to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead as well. So Jesus is the central character of this, uh, of this narrative. In fact, he lays down what is about to unfold there. When I read stuff like this, by the way, in the Bible, I always ask myself, if, if I'm there, what if I just at that moment say, okay. I'm going to suspend, I'm going to suspend whatever anticipated outcome I have. And I know what the outcome of sickness is, particularly serious sickness. It's always death. I know that. That has been my experience. It's been the experience of all the people that I know. But upon the word of Christ, I am going to suspend anticipating death. And I'm going to rather say, okay, I'm looking now for the glory of God. I wonder why we don't think more often that way. Because Jesus, the one central character of this narrative, has the power, has the authority here. He's already said to lay down his own life and to take it up again. And that he has been given that authority by the Father. Well, if he has authority over his own life, perhaps he has authority over all life. And so I'm going to suspend, suspend what I anticipate in my flesh and see what glory will be revealed here. I think I... Think I would have a lot more fruitful Christian life if I believe God over my senses and over my experience and over my expectations. 
and just trust him. The next thing he says in verse 5 as they, uh, the, the narrative continues to unfold. And he heard that he was sick. He stays two days longer in the place. And then finally in verse 7, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Uh, again, uh, really is in an anticipation of what they've already said or in response to what they've already said. They know, Jesus knows, that they took up stones and, and were wanting to kill him when he left Judea from Jerusalem area. And so he reasserts to them, I'm going back there. I'm going back there. Uh, I don't remember who said this, but uh, I'm wanting to say A.W. Pink, but I read a quote one time that says, uh, you are immortal until you fulfill the Lord's purposes for you and the world. You are immortal. No enemy can take you out. You can't even take yourself out. You're immortal until you fulfilled the purposes of the Lord. And Christ knew this. And so Christ wasn't concerned about going back into the lion's den. In fact, I think he understood that his time was drawing near, but it was not yet come. He had a task to do that he had of the Father, and he was immortal until that task was completed. Therefore, we are going back to Judea after having delayed two days, by the way. And so Jesus is, is making decisions in the midst of this. He's not reacting. He's, he's deciding. He's choosing. He's electing his course of action. He's not just instinctively acting out. We need to go. If he was doing that, he would have gone immediately because he loved Lazarus and he loved Martha and he loved Mary. But Jesus, what motivates Jesus is the display of the glory of God not the accommodations of the desires of human hearts because they are finite and they are, they are sometimes wrong desires. Even they, they may be right desires, but their expectations are wrong uh, in many ways. Jesus is not motivated by the desires of human hearts, but by the glory of God. So he goes, verse 9, some other words from him. When the disciples rebuke him there or question him about going back, he says, verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? This is why I think he was speaking here of, of the, the, his immortality until his task was complete because he seems to make the, the reference here, there's 12 hours in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So he's making a reference to the, to the daylight working hours. I have this much daylight to work. Nobody can bring the dark too quickly. Nobody can overwhelm me with the dark. It's going to be light this long, so I'm going to work while it's light. You don't work while it's dark because you can't see and you don't have light within yourself. So you have to wait for the light to come back if you want to work again. So he, he's making a reference to the unfolding or the passing of time. And that strikes me because he's just made reference to I'm going back to Judea. It's as if he's saying there, I'm going back to Judea because the, the time is unfolding and my time has not yet concluded. Therefore, nobody can take me out. They had their opportunities already. And each time I moved away from them or walked away and they were unable to take me into their custody and I'm still alive and we exited Jerusalem and we come to Bethany and I'm still alive and I will be alive and I will not be taken down until my time has come. So therefore we're going back to Judea. I'm not waiting till the dark when the darkness comes. I'm, when the darkness comes, I think he means here that'll be the end of my days and the end of my work here upon this earth. But right now it's daylight and nobody can cut that time short. So I'm continuing to do my work. I'm not intimidated by those as well. 
It would be a wonderful thing to come to that place in our lives, wouldn't it? To live your life in such a way as that God, that you knew that your time were in the hands of God and that your life was, was literally immortal until the purposes of God for you had to complete it and at the end of which he would bring you into his presence. So what would you have to lose? You would live your life to its fullest without the fear of losing a life, which the scriptures say we have been in bondage to all of our life through sin, the fear of death. To be liberated from the fear of death, trusting that my life is immortal until God finishes with me in this world. And at the end of that, he brings me into his presence where my eternal fullness of life begins in Jesus Christ. It would free us up to live. Free us up to live. Well, there was no one any more free to live out the fullness of his incarnation, his life here on this earth more than Jesus Christ. Because no one knew more certainly that he was immortal and in, in that his hour had come or had not yet come. Verse 11, the words of Jesus here along the central character. He said this to them, and then after that he said to him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Um, I don't think Jesus is being tricky with words here. I think in the context of what Christ knew was about to take place in the life of Lazarus, he knew that he is essentially asleep. Uh, you've heard me say before, sleep is something from which you arise. Uh, if I say I'm going to sleep tonight, I wouldn't say I'm dying, I'm going to sleep because I have every expectations of awaking and in the morning. So I don't go to bed tonight and say, good night, hope, I'm dying. I say, good night, I'm going to bed, I'm going to sleep, see you in the morning. And she understands when I'm asleep that there's the expectation that she will see me again in the morning. I'm not dying. I'm, I'm temporarily re, uh, resting until I rise again the next morning. And Jesus says of Lazarus, let's go to Judea. My time has not yet come. Fear not those who would try to take my life. They will be given that authority when that time comes. But this is not the time. We're going to Judea. And when we get to Judea, I'm going to go see Lazarus because Lazarus has fallen asleep. And I'm going there so that I might raise Lazarus from his sleep. I'm going to disturb him or bring him back to consciousness. He's, he's only sleeping. Jesus knows that he's dead. The disciples don't really know that yet. They're like us. They're dense. And, and they, they finally say, well, if he's asleep, he'll be fine. In fact, that's a good sign. If you're sick, what you need is plenty of rest. Boy, I could relate to that when I was reading that uh, with the COVID. Man, that's all I wanted. I literally, you can believe this or not, and I don't sleep that much. I mean, I, I probably live on five hours a night of sleep always. Uh, but I slept eight, I think I slept nine hours, got up, drank two cups of coffee, went back to sleep, slept another six hours, got up, ate supper, went, fell asleep in the recliner, went back to sleep at about nine that night and slept all the way through to nine the next morning. That's more sleep than I've got in 24-hour period of all of my life. I've never slept that much. But I woke up. I got up again. And to me, that's, that's why this meant so much. The disciples were saying, well, if he's asleep, that's good. He's sick. He needs some rest. Let him get some sleep. He'll be fine. And finally, Jesus has to speak directly to the issue. And he says it as plainly as you could possibly say it. Lazarus is dead. 
There's no doubting about this. Don't misunderstand this because if you do, you miss the glory that's about to be unfolded. So be sure you know that before we get to Lazarus, he is not literally asleep. In your understanding, he is dead. But I know what's about to happen. And from my perspective, he is only temporarily unavailable. He is about to be available once again. He will live. But right now, he's dead. So they're going to Judea with no illusions in regards to the condition of, of, uh, of, of Lazarus in this moment. So Jesus says this. Verse 15, to me is stunning as well. I am, and I am glad. Notice he says here, for your sakes. I don't think because Jesus loved Lazarus, he wasn't glad in the, in the human sense and in the sense of his affections for Lazarus because he knows Lazarus is going to experience death and he already has at this point. In fact, he goes on to say later on that Lazarus' body is already undergoing decay. Lazarus is getting an exposure to death that nobody around Jesus at that moment had. Nobody, nobody's dead and come back to life. He knows that Lazarus is having an experience even while we are speaking. But I'm glad for your sakes that I did not go to deliver him from that. As much as my heart loves Lazarus and my affections would want to do that, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. So that, why? Why is he glad? So that you might believe. Now let us go. He says to him, and of course I mentioned there's where Thomas says, he's called Didymus, who says to his disciples, then let us go that we may die with him. I appreciate Thomas's resignation, but he don't sound too positive about this whole experience. Uh, it doesn't seem like he got the 12 hours in a day and working in the day. It doesn't seem like he got the implications of all this. It doesn't seem like he remembered the very beginning words of Jesus, which says this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God and that the Son of God might be glorified by it. He forgot all about that, and he just seems resigned. All right, I mean, he's Jesus. Who's going to argue with Jesus? So let's just let us go, and we're going to die with him. That's all, that's all I know. I mean, I would have loved to have seen Thomas and, and myself even to be more hopeful. Well, let's go with him. <laughs> he's already said this is not going to end in death. Well, he's, he's telling us now that he is dead. So it obviously has entered to death, but Jesus never lies. So something's going to happen in regards to the outcome of this situation. I want to go. <laughs> let's go see. Because he's already said the glory of God is going to be manifested and somehow the Son of God is going to be glorified in these events. So I'm anxious to go, not to die, but to see and to behold the glory of God. But Thomas is like you and I would do. Well, Lazarus is dead. Let's go. We'll just die with Jesus. You can't talk him out of it. He seems bound and determined to go. He's Jesus. He's obviously, we believe he's the Son of God. Let's follow him. I'd rather die with the Son of God than to live on having abandoned him. So we'll go with him and we'll die there with him. It's commendable in some way, but it's certainly not optimistic. So it tells me that Thomas or Didymus and the disciples and even later on Mary and Martha have no clue about what's about to happen. But Jesus certainly does. Just a quick word tonight about the circumstances here. Involved, obviously, the main circumstances that you have a man whom Jesus loved who is sick. Uh, we're not told what his illness is. 
We're not even told that it's terminal. The only implications we get that is serious is that his sisters apparently have seen enough to feel the urgency to send word to Jesus. So they send some, a messenger to Jesus to say, come quickly, the one whom you love is sick. So that's the circumstance. Lazarus is sick unto death or he's very seriously ill. They don't know if he's going to die, but you get the impression that they think that if we can get Jesus here, he may not. Because we know that he heals the sick and he brings sight to the blind and that he cleanses the lepers. We know he does these things. We've witnessed these things. So, so, so let's go get Jesus, get him here very quickly. That's the circumstance. So you have the urgency of these sisters who love their brother. You have their appeal to Jesus. Notice they say to him, Lord, but they have the appeal to Jesus on the basis of their convictions in regards to the love of Christ for Lazarus. We know you love him. We've seen you interact with him. We've seen your affections. We, we're not thinking conceptually about love or in a theological realm. We've witnessed your love for this man firsthand. Come and save the one you love. That's the, that's the foundation for their confidence in many ways of calling Christ to that situation. So that's their circumstances. He's sick. He has a, a brother and sister or two sisters who love him dearly and who love Christ. And they've understood that Jesus at this point is their only hope. Who knows whether or not they had already entertained all the physicians and they had already exercised all their efforts to save Lazarus's life. And perhaps they had exhausted all of those things. And whatever their circumstance, they felt the despair of losing their brother. So they call out to Jesus. They send word to Jesus. Verse 4, kind of coming back to what Jesus says, but when Jesus heard this, he says the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. I'm assuming that he says that in a way that it is audible, that at least his disciples hear it, and perhaps the messenger whom they sent hears it as well. Please come quickly. The one whom you love is sick. I've got a word from Martha and Mary. and They sent me to tell you this. And Jesus' response to that is says, this sickness is not unto death. So the messenger knows that. The, the disciples know that at this point. Verse 5 tells us again how much Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So verse 6 is what is so shocking. I think about one of the most shocking statements in the whole passage. But he says that when, having said that Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. So if, you, if, if I just reduce that down in simple terms, I love you so much that I'm not coming. I mean, we would not think of that as love. Love, in our idea, would have been immediately drops everything he does, gathers whatever things he has, and makes haste with all, or makes way all due haste to get to the side of the one he loves, to lay his hand upon them, and to preserve their life. And we would have marveled and said, oh, how he loves him. He brought the power of God to bear in the life of our brother Lazarus. And he saved our dear brother. Praise God. And that would have been a legitimate play, praise. But again, Jesus says this is, this is not going to end in death, even though it does end in death. It's not going to end in death. It's for the glory of God and so that the Son of Man might be glorified. So then, 
Having heard their urgency and heard of Lazarus' sickness, he remains where he is two days more. You might even say he was waiting on Lazarus to die before he went. Now, I can imagine how that comes into conflict of the common perceptions of Jesus Christ in the world today. That is not consistent with what people would generally say about Jesus. In fact, if you told somebody that Jesus didn't, if you told the average person in the world today that has some vague idea of Christianity that Jesus acted in this way, they would not immediately see that and conceive of that as love. What do you mean he waited two days? What kind of, what kind of Jesus would do something like that? If he's genuinely a loving Savior, and if he's genuinely a powerful Savior, why would he not just speak a word from where he was? Was and saved the life of his dear friend. The world doesn't conceive of this, but Jesus does exactly what Jesus intends to do here. He delays two days longer. And then apparently at the end of those two days, in verse 7, Jesus says to them, let us go back to Judea. I've already spoken of that in regards. So these are the circumstances involved in what's about to happen. Obviously, as I've shared as well in, in, in chapter 8, the, the disciples are reluctant to do that. They have some uh, apprehension in regards to returning to Judea or into that area. They, they fear perhaps for the life of Christ. But nonetheless, Christ is returning to Judea and he's coming back to these places where his life was threatened. Obviously, the circumstances when he arrives or before they depart or perhaps even on the way, they're having these discussions. And Jesus says of Lazarus that he is asleep. I've already touched on that. But I am going that I may awaken him out of the sleep. And we know the disciples are misunderstanding that. So the display of the glory of God is going to have a relevance in everybody's life, certainly in Lazarus's. But for Martha and Mary as well. In fact, one place later on, Martha says, I know he's going to rise again in the last day. <laughs> but, but she's not expecting him to rise again right now. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus questions her in regards to her belief of the resurrection. She has a general theological belief that the dead do rise. I, I acknowledge that that is a possibility, but, but that's for the last day, right? That's, that's where she is. Mary's just quiet. Mary's just heartbroken. She lost her brother. She's the contemplative one. She's trying to measure and weigh all these things out. The disciples, they don't seem to know what's about to happen. And all Thomas is waiting around to see who picks up the stone and starts to kill him. So everybody, everybody's about to behold a display of the glory of God, each in their own context, each in their own particular role, or each in their own particular function in this narrative. Each one's going to see a display of the glory of God. And of course, Jesus finally speaks very plainly of dead. I was reading an article, and they were describing uh, what happens in the first, I think it was a 72 hours after the heart stops beating, Within three hours, rigor mortis sets in, and the whole process, Brother Greg could probably come up here and give you a more detailed process. But the scriptures are very, very clear in indicating he's been dead for four days. In fact, whenever they suggest opening the tomb, Martha feels compelled to tell Jesus, he's decaying. He's gonna, there's going to be a stench coming out of this this tomb, if you remove that stone, you understand that, right, Jesus? The body was well on its way to decomposition. In fact, uh, 
If had he not been anointed or covered in anything, the insects and all those things would have already been feeding on him in four days. Lazarus is dead. Make no mistake about it. Now, Jesus had raised others, Jairus, his daughter, and, and the young man in the funeral pyre and, uh, as they were moving along, and, and they were all of a, sort of a sudden thing there. And he'd raised others from the dead, but nobody had been dead four days. Nobody had already begun to undergo decay. Nobody had been raised in the audience of such a large group of people. Nobody had been raised in this way. And Jesus was about to do this. And he tells his disciples, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. I'll probably come back to these verses and preach to these because there's a lot that I want to share. Uh, But probably the central passage of the whole text is whenever Jesus confronts Martha. Martha comes to Jesus. She hears he's coming. She goes out to meet him in verse 20. Mary stayed there in the home. Verse 20, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. This is when she responds. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her, one of those profound moments in scripture, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes, you ever listen to this carefully? He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And, even, and everyone who's living lives and believes in me will never die. I mean, that's extraordinary. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. And if you're alive now and believe in me, you're never going to die. I mean, that's stunning. And then he says, do you believe this? Do you believe that? I'm stating it as an absolute truth. The question here is not whether or not it is true. The question is whether or not you believe that to be true. That's the question for you and me. I believe that to be true. I absolutely am convinced by the Holy Spirit and the truth of Scripture that having, having believed in Jesus while I'm living, I will never die. Death is literally for me sleep because I have an expectation of rising again. Just as Paul says to those, uh, those Thessalonians who thought their loved ones were lost forever, they were asleep because they had believed in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If, if I happen to die believing, then I will live again. So, so even if I'm living on and I die, I already know that I'll, I'll be living again. I will never die having believed in Jesus Christ. And if I have believed in Jesus Christ and die, don't worry about it. I'm still going to live. So death cannot overcome us who have believed in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And then he turns directly to Martha, who has already said, I believe that whatever you ask, the, the Father will give you. I believe that there will be a resurrection on the last day. And he says, but do you believe this? That's what's critical to what's about to unfold. Because I'm asking you, do you believe it? And I'm about to show you that it's a reality. By the command, by the power to command dead men to come forth from the tomb. Do you believe this? And that's a critical question. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed. Not, he didn't say that. 
She may mean that, but I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she's, she's got that right. This is the Messiah. I believe that. But she still seems to stop just short of saying she believed what he just directly asked her, do you believe? Either that or she's summarizing the, uh, her belief in what he just said by saying you're the Christ. It could be either of those, but I'm inclined to think that she's, she's not quite sure about what he's just said, but I certainly believe you're the Christ. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. I'm going to go to verse 34. And Jesus finally arrives and he asked them, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then there Jesus weeps, which I think is related to his love for Lazarus. Um, he genuinely, authentically loved Lazarus. And Jesus knew what Lazarus was currently undergoing and enduring. And he wept. I've read some people that said he wept because he was about to call him back from the, from the good place he was going. Uh, maybe that's so. But I tend to think he wept here simply because he grieved for his loved, beloved friend Lazarus for what he was enduring in death. So the Jews were saying when they saw Jesus weep, weep, oh, look how he loved him. Oh, Jesus loved him. But some of them says, could not the man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Yes. The answer to that is yes. The bigger question is, why didn't he? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said to them, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, the practical Martha, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. Now there was a tradition among the Jews that believed that the body, the spirit lingered around the body after death um, until the fourth day, until it finally departed away from the body. And uh, whether, whether that's true of a tradition or whether it was true in general, um, it, seems, it seems that this is beyond that point. In the Jews' understanding, in their tradition, the Spirit's already departed Lazarus' body. He's not lying in a cold tomb of made of rock, carved of rock, swooning as they, as they often use in terms of Jesus' resurrection. He is dead. He is dead in the Jewish mind and in the, even in the Gentile mind, four days dead. So Jesus said to them, remove the stone. Martha responds the way she does. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So you notice that that's to overcome her reluctance to remove the stone. Jesus, why do I want to remove the stone that the stench of my dear brother's decaying body would foul the air? And in response to that, he says, did I not say that if you believe, you're going to see the glory of God? That's to overcome her reluctance to open the tomb. Open the tomb! There's something here more glorious about to happen and a display of the glory of God more critical to your well-being than the temporary stench of death. So remove the stone. And they did that. And of course, Christ prays, verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Come forth from the dead. Four days dead, body decaying, insects perhaps already beginning to feed on the body of Lazarus. And all of that gets reversed by the power of the word of Christ. Simply the command, come out. Come forth from this grave. There is an authoritative voice speaking over the death. Who is reversing the effects of death and calling you out from that death back into this life. That's, that's power. That's authority. That's not, a set of, that's not a set of paddles restarting a heart of someone who's just recently died. That's not a, one of those machines that we got now. That's, that's none of those things. That is the sheer power and authority of the word of God to command death to release for the moment its victim and let him go free. And Jesus indeed calls him out of the tomb. And this is what's always fascinated me because I'm just dumb and I ask dumb questions. The man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Now that's just always struck me. You've got the power to command life out of death itself and he's still bound in grave clothes. Why not call him out of the grave clothes? Why not say, Lazarus, come forth, shed the grave clothes, come out and be clothed in a white robe? And it would have been done. But he has him come out. I was reading one commentator that believed because of the binding, he wouldn't have walked out. He was literally carried as it were, or levitating out of the tomb and suspended in the air and coming out in the presence of Christ and standing there bound tight like a mummy with his face wrapped up, standing in front of the whole crowd and Jesus just called that man out of the tomb. And I have to wonder when I read this, why is he in grave clothes? And it's stunning to me that he says to them, you loose him and you let him go. I give him life, you remove the grave clothes. And I couldn't help but think of the application or the implications for that of what it means for God to call dead men into life. And we come into that life in many ways like Lazarus with our grave clothes on. The remnants of our deadness are still clinging to us. And he assigns to those around us, as it were, the church and the, through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth. You unloose him. You work on removing the grave clothes. He's got life. You can't give him that, but you can help him to remove the, the implements of his death and clothe him anew. anew. And to me, that's one of the most remarkable parts about this whole narrative. It is glorious and certainly not beyond the power of Christ to call the living, the dead to life. And he demonstrates that not only here, but in Jairus' case, his daughter's case, and the young boy who had died. And in my case, personally, he called me from death unto life. But it's remarkable to me that he who has the power to remove all the grave clothes at once assigns the task to those around Lazarus. And I think he means here his sister, all those who loved him, and all those who had gathered around him 
and love Lazarus. And so they began the work of removing the grave clothes of Lazarus. Don't you know that was an intimidating thing? I mean, you just saw a mummy called out of a tomb and he's standing there suspended perhaps in the air and the Lord says, go over there near the mummy and start taking the cloths off the mummy. And as they took them off, I can't even imagine. I, I like to imagine that when they took the face cloth off first and when they did, they saw a big toothy grin from Lazarus. You, you people won't believe what I just experienced. Oh, yes, we do, Lazarus. And they slowly unfolded those grave clothes and he began to move around and his weight settled down on his feet and he must have surely must have run and hugged his Lord who had called him to life. Who knows? We're not given that. As a result of this, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them... Even then, I, I thought about this, even when Jesus gives the parable about the rich man and Lazarus, which I don't think is this Lazarus. But even when he says that, and they, he's begging him to send somebody to warn my family so they won't come to this awful place. And Jesus says they have Moses and the prophets. You know, let them believe them. And he says there, they won't believe even though one be raised from the dead. He makes the reference there. And here, here you have some of these. They just witnessed Lazarus come forth from the tomb, having been dead four days, un unclothed, the grave clothes taken off. They see that it is indeed Lazarus, the man who died four days ago, is now living and hugging his sisters and, and communing with Jesus Christ. And many people believed as a result of that. But then it said, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. The implication is that maybe, maybe they thought the Pharisees would believe or maybe they thought that the Pharisees would be outraged and they wanted them to know that. Apparently, look at this, verse 47, this is what I mean, that it kicked into high gear, this lust to kill Christ, to put Christ to death. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's stunning, isn't it? In this moment, my place, my status, and our nation's survival is more important than the reality that the Son of God is upon the earth and has just called a dead man back to life. Boy, my priorities are straight. I want my place and my nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing. Now, by the way, I don't think he was trying to spare or trying to be a prophet here as much as he was providentially prophesying. He says, Caiaphas, high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Well, he was indeed, he was indeed prophesying. Now, he did not say this of his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Now, isn't that just a strange, somewhat fitting conclusion to what's just unfolded? This sickness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God and so that you might, that the Son of God might be glorified. 
And then this thing unfolds. And indeed, Jesus was exactly right. This did not end in death. It ended in life by the power of God to overcome death and to bring to new life. And the, and the closing statement in regards to this having happened was that they began to plot from that day on how they could kill him. We cannot have this in this world because this is a challenge to my status, to my place in life. And let me just say in a point of application, the resurrection of Jesus and his power to call the dead to life will interrupt your schedule. It don't give a rip about your status in your workplace or in your culture or in your society or in your economic, uh, your economic position in the world. It don't give a rip about that. It gives a rip about the display of the glory of God. And, and it's amazing to me that the humanity for which he came to die would would say in general, would say something such as this. We got to get rid of him. He's a threat to everything that we hold dear. And we've got to silence him. And the only way to do that is to kill him. Because if we let him go on, the Romans are going to come and they're going to assign to us all the things that he's doing and they're going to wipe out our whole nation. And I want to preserve our nation. They probably patted themselves on the back that they were doing a good deed for God. They, they kill you and think they do God a service. And that's exactly what they had plotted for Jesus. So I went farther in that text than I wanted to tonight, but we'll come back to it maybe. But stand with me and let's close. Um, I've said to many people throughout the years that the church, is, the church is in the business of removing grave clothes. Uh, and that's what, that's what this church has been doing in my life, and I pray that that's what... Uh, this church has been doing in your life as well. But the church never called you to life. Jesus Christ did that. And he spoke over, over the deadness that you were in and called you to new life. And that's just an extraordinary blessing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the word. Lord, thank you for inspiring the gospel writer to record these events. Lord, we're humbled when we think of Jesus' love for Lazarus. And Lord, I think it's no less for us. And Lord, tonight I'm particularly struck by the fact that I was as dead as Lazarus. The insects may have not began to consume my fleshly body, but Father, by all rights and for all purposes, I was just as dead. I had no desire for you, no desire for the things of God what truth may have been evident once in my life was suppressed so far down and deep that I was dead to the things of you. And Lord, I thank you that according to your own time and by your own mercy and by your own grace, there was a day that came that you spoke into the darkness of my death and of my tomb. And you said of me, Larry, come out. And the very power of that word carried me out of that death into new life. Lord, thank you for that. And I thank you for that as it's represented by so many in this room tonight. Lord, that is a miracle. That is an extraordinary reality for which none of us can boast any contribution whatsoever other than being the recipients of a merciful God. I pray that we'll go away tonight with that encouragement and that hope and, and that humility as well. 
And rather than silencing Christ, Father, may we testify of him openly and loudly and boldly wherever we go. For he is the giver of life. We ask in his name for his sake and glory. Amen.